Hello and welcome to the Driven by Diversity podcast. I'm Mariana. And I'm Steph. And every week we shine the spotlight on underrepresented groups in the world of racing. Our guests share their journey into the sport and also delve into what diversity and inclusion means to them. We hope that we can provide you with real role models who you can relate to and who represent you. And more than that, that you'll feel inspired and encouraged to know that you can make it in motorsport, no matter your background. For our final episode, before we sign off for 2020, we are joined by an ex-Mercedes F1 team engineer whose ambition as a young graduate saw him quit his job, sell everything he owned and pack his bags to move 4,000 miles across the Atlantic from Miami to Brackley. Focusing on concept design, composite design and powertrain integration at the home of the seven-time world champions, his journey into Formula One saw him jump a lot of hurdles in order to get to where he had always dreamed of. After a good stint at the factory, this Lebanese-American engineer now has his own design consultancy in the US. Having seen the huge potential to grow the sport in the Americas, aligning with F1's ambition to enter emerging markets. For episode 20, we chat to Gabriel Elias. You worked at Mercedes Formula One team for six years, where you worked as an engineer, which I'm sure is the envy of many. But engineering is obviously quite broad. So could you start by telling us a bit more about what you specifically specialized in within your role? Yeah, uh, so I actually got to work in three specific uh, groups in the design office. Uh, I first started my first job at Mercedes was in concept design. So uh, future car concept really required me to work a year ahead of the rest of the office, doing some early schemes of uh, next year's car, so to speak, uh, applying new technologies or or uh, doing a lot of competitor analysis to what the other teams were doing and trying to see if we could better that for the for the future cars that you know were coming out through the team. So that was my first job. That was um, quite a, uh, a unique role for a younger engineer. Most young engineers don't get to do a job like that, but I had some uh, really specific previous skills that uh, helped to make that transition uh, very easy. I came from a passenger car um, design previously. So uh, that was my first job. Second was I was in powertrain integration, which uh, involved uh, packaging of the power unit of a Formula One car. And I did that for for a year. It was about a year and a half stint in total because it was half in concept. And then finally, I was in composite design. So I I worked on a variety of carbon fiber uh, related parts, the chassis, the wings, the floor, uh, aerodynamics, all that kind of stuff. Even some of the chassis structural stuff like the the radiator ducts uh, I did as well. So that was my last, uh, I guess you could say about three and a half years I was in uh, composite design. So that encompasses my total six years at Mercedes. So you really got to get stuck in across a few different areas there. Um, were you always interested in engineering? Was it something you always had your eyes set on or did you just sort of find your interest as you grew up? Well, um, interesting question. I started like most young children uh, with a keen interest in motorsport from a very young age. And I was about seven or eight and I was like, oh, I want to be a race car driver. Everyone says it to their, to their uh, parents, right? And my dad's like, well, I don't have any money, so you should go be an engineer and maybe you could design race cars. And I was very young at the time and I just kind of said, all right, sure, I'll go try to design race cars. So that was really the goal from uh, probably like in earnest from about 10 years old. 
on. That was always my goal to design race cars. And it had to be Formula One because uh, everything I did had to be the best or the top. I couldn't <laughs> for something else. So I, I, I kind of set off on this like ridiculous path to the, uh, the top of motorsport from a very young age. And uh, that molded my desire to be an engineer inadvertently because I liked race cars and to get into designing race cars, you have to be an engineer, I guess, so to speak. So that's how I kind of drove down this path and everything else just kind of followed behind. Yeah. In, in reality. So countless people obviously dream of a career in Formula One, but can you just talk us through those steps that you took to get there in um, sort of like your path before you got that first role? Sure, absolutely. Um, the one thing I will say is it's not a quick process. It never is. Um, I started the process, like I said, <laughs> I, I had it in my head from, let's say, 10 years old. But in starting in general from university, I did my undergraduate in the U.S. at the University of Miami. And I can remember vividly, I'm sitting maybe 2008, 2009, me uh, waking up as early as possible to call the HR uh people at various F1 teams like hey did you get my resume you know for like an internship or or a placement yeah and they're all like what who who are you and like click (laughs) so so I never um I wasn't deterred at a young age but it was a very long process so the one thing I did kind of determine over time was I need to get experience as an engineer I need to be designing cars and then I can take that small concentrated experience and and bring it to England and maybe I'll have a chance of getting on a Formula One team. So that was my path. So I did undergraduate in the U.S. I got a job at a, at a car company. I worked for Honda uh, in Ohio as an engine designer. It was my first job. And uh, I did that for about two and a half years. And then I, I decided I was going to make this big leap. Honda had experience in Formula One. My boss wouldn't let me um, work on the Formula One engine. They were just starting at the time. He said I didn't have enough experience. So I said, you know... I quit. I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> I told them I would design a Formula One car in a year's time. Uh, and I, I quit my job like the next day and then uh, basically sold everything I owned and, and packed up for England. So that, wow. was, uh, that was the start of it. Love yeah. That. Very ambitious kind of uh, yeah. jump. Um, I will say that it, it was uh, looking back, it's pretty crazy. I did, I decided to do that, but I had a plan to go get a master's in England and uh, at Oxford Brooks, which was uh, usually the pathway. If any American or Canadian was trying to get into Formula One, it was through one of these motorsport master programs. Okay. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's a good shot. That'll, that'll give me my best shot. I think I have the tools now I can get the master's. If I knew, I knew I needed to be in England to have that shot. So uh, that allowed me to make the jump there. Now you've mentioned um, on, you've mentioned on Twitter and bits like that the uh, difficulties that you faced in order to actually get to that point where you got the first job, including uh, the visa aspect of it. And I think you even mentioned that you did a BBC radio interview to try and like, raise your visibility. Um, what tips would you have for other aspiring engineers who want to follow in your footsteps? Like what things can they do to make themselves stand out as well as the BBC radio interviews? And <laughs> so we, we did that for a very specific reason. So I did my master's uh, during 2013, 2014 with the hopes of, of getting this work visa so I could work in Formula One. And uh, at the time, the UK government had stopped this uh, two-year work visa for postgraduate um for postgraduates that study in the UK. 
uh, I guess Theresa May at the time, she, she just cut the program and said, no, no more. Too many guys were coming into the UK. So I knew the team still had the ability to sponsor uh, exceptional talent from other sides of the world, but they just didn't want to go out of their way to do that. They prefer if the government was going to give these people visas. So there's about 10 of us in our course at the time. And I, I said, hey, look, we can maybe, I don't know, ruffle some feathers. So we, we started going to the, the vice chancellor of the university, like, hey, you know, we're all paying all this money. We're, you know, we're really capable engineers. We want to have a chance to work in Formula One, help us like get the word out. So these teams know that we're here, you know, that they can hire us. So we kind of created a bit of a, a grassroots approach, a movement to help get some of us employed on Formula One teams at the time. And it was, uh, yeah, so we're on BBC Radio, we're on uh, BBC Oxford, or the television station down there as well. And um, just, uh, we contacted people like the MIA, the Motorsport Industry Association, saying, hey, can you give us uh, ins at these HR, uh, you know, and the various HR groups at the other teams so we can have uh, a bit of a sideways approach into, we can't apply through the main methods because they say, do you need sponsorship? Yes, well, cancel your application. So you have no chance, you know, if you're not from the United Kingdom or the EU, generally you have almost no chance of getting a job on a Formula One team. That's the, that was a stark reality. Um, obviously I bucked that trend and it's probably because I worked really hard at it, but, uh, at the time it was very difficult. And, uh, a lot of the other students that were in the course with me did have, uh, a good chance as well. And some of them got job offers as well on various F1 teams. So it wasn't all, uh, all lost on them as well. So there's, there's a couple of us that did get jobs, but, um, yeah, it, I was just, it, it was almost like the stars aligned for my position. It was the right job. For my experience, uh, someone I had dealt with through my uh, visa endeavors, sitting there trying to get a visa, and um, it, everything just lined up, and I got I ended up getting the job. So that's that's how it worked out for me. But it was a it was a lot more difficult than most people probably expect. I think in the UK, a lot of my coworkers, for them, a job in Formula One was just like driving down the street and getting an engineering job. Like, oh, I'm from this area. I drove 40 minutes. Here's my new job. They just get hired out of uni. They go to whatever uni they want. And it's it's a seamless process. You don't really see yeah. the path that someone has, like me, had to do mm. 5,000 miles away, sell everything I owned, get a master's in England. That costs, you know, geez, I probably paid $40,000 US for the master's. Wow. Um, it's a lot yeah. of money. And then not even have a guaranteed spot. You still have to, you know, go there and get a job mm -hmm. at that point. So it's it's a it's a really um, difficult process, but it's not impossible. Yeah. I think that's what I wanted to convey to people was it's it's difficult, but if you if you really want it, you you can you can do it. I did it, so that's that's the whole point, you know. It really does sound like such a convoluted path for someone who isn't from the UK or from even Europe. And that must have been really difficult, but you've obviously got to have that dedication and ambition there initially to push past that and really have that end goal in sight and really strive towards it. Um, having gone through that process, what would you say to any international applicant looking to get a job in Formula One now that you've gone through that? Is there any anything that you learned or would have done differently? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I think uh, the the first thing I, I see it from other people trying to do the, the same thing I was doing is is make sure you're doing your research, um, knowing 
the the competencies required for a job in Formula One, the background needed. Um, there's there's resources like LinkedIn. There's lots of YouTube videos that explain, uh, you know, interviews from other engineers. Uh, look at people's backgrounds. Study study the people in in the sport because uh, you're going to have excess hurdles to jump over. Basically, come, being a foreigner, not from the EU. And once you get past those, you still need to meet all the requirements that a Formula One team might want from you. Mm -hmm. And I notice a lot of students that contact me now, there's tons and, and I'm, I'm always flattered because I get contacted by people from just about every corner of the earth on, on like LinkedIn. And they're all, they send me variety, you know, I would say varying levels of uh, messages, you know, and I can tell immediately someone who's either, who's definitely serious or has a chance yeah. of making it into F1 and someone who's just like, this is a pipe dream you know? Yeah. And so there really is a, there's a level to it and it's not just, Oh, I really want to be in formula one. It's like, no, you, you have to be the best at what you're doing and understand exactly what they want and be the best at what they want. And then all the stars still have to align and you get this visa or however. And that's why you see so many, so few foreigners in the sport. I mean, my team was a thousand people and I would say at its peak, there was four Americans on it in technical wow. role. Yeah. So we were, we were quite rare. Um, and, and maybe one or two, uh, I could say there was probably like one or two Japanese aero aerodynamicists at one time, uh, Mercedes that they since left. And, and I could probably count the people not from the EU on two hands out of a thousand yeah. people. So it's not very many. Yeah. Uh, so you, you have to imagine like to break into that, that talent pool, mm -hmm. it, it, you just need to do extra research. Everything has to be, done to the nth degree. And mm -hmm. I thought I did that. And once I started talking to the other Americans that had a uh, similar paths, a couple across the grid, you realize that they all had very similar um, takes on, on the process as well. So. That sounds like, like Steph said, very convoluted uh, to get to the end goal, but you did do it yourself and you are living proof that it's possible. So anyone listening, don't be put off by the hurdles. <laughs> um, it is possible. And like you said, you get contacted by lots of different people. So give Gabriel a shout, guys, <laughs> if you want some advice. <laughs> I'm sure he won't mind. I noticed also on your LinkedIn that you have your own consultancy, GME Concepts. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I believe it's an automotive consultancy. What sort of stuff do you get involved in and why did you start it up? Yeah, I, I kind of started it up as I knew I was leaving Formula One and uh, well, Formula One, at least in the UK. And the process of me starting it was thinking, well, hey, I really love this sport. It was really good to me. Uh, and I think that there's a huge potential to grow the sport in, in North America. So knowing uh, my background and knowing that F1 itself wants to expand into emerging markets, one being the United States is, is an emerging market for F1. Uh, I thought that I can kind of place myself in, in, a, in a place where I have technical experience and background that would be necessary to help grow the sport, uh, you know, with various projects in the U.S. So those things are, uh, I've talked to people who are trying to start teams, uh, people trying to start races, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, and everything in between emerging, you know, potential sponsors. We've even, uh, I've been dealing with young drivers lately. Uh, have some really cool projects with the young drivers. I don't want to speak about it yet, but I think it could turn into something uh, quite big, hopefully. Trying to open up the United States to uh, global motorsport, European motorsport. We have our own little bubble here in the US and 
U.S. Motorsport is uh, offers great racing, very competitive racing, but it doesn't really uh, the I would say the level of talent on the driving and engineering level uh, is usually quite behind what you see in Europe, and that's just because Europe is really at the tip at the tip of the spear uh, in all forms of motorsport. So uh, there there is talent here, but you have to find it. You have to search for it. Maybe I'm I'm one of those talented people from back in the day that someone found me. And there might be others out there. There might be the next team, uh, Formula One team, you know, might come from the U.S. There might be the next Formula One world champion that comes from the U.S. And, and a lot of the projects I've been working on now with a couple of different clients have been uh, surrounding those kinds of um, potential uh, future, you know, future pathways into Formula One within North America. Fascinating. It sounds like you're well placed to head that up as you've got such a broad experience behind you. On that note, what have been some of your highlights of working within Formula One over the years that you were at Mercedes and anything since? I have uh, I have technical highlights, and then there's obviously the party. Amazing. <laughs> we uh, I'll tell you what the first the first championship party in 2014 was uh, by far the the best party I've ever been to. You know. <laughs> I've never, it, it was just surreal to be kind of in this space, you know, and, and surrounded by these great people, you know, designing Lewis, Lewis Hamilton's car is, um, you know, it's a, it's a dream that I think I had before I moved to England. And I, I, I sent him a, I remember looking back at my Twitter a long, long time ago, and I, I had a, a cheeky tweet where I said to him, I was like, Hey, Lewis Hamilton, I'm going to design your car someday or something like this. And this was years prior to me moving to England. And I didn't know I was going to end up at Mercedes, you know, and I ended up being one of his designers, you know, designing his car and winning multiple world championships in the process. And that was, that was a cool moment. You know, every time you got to drink champagne on a Monday, (laughs) we used to get, uh, (laughs) we used to get uh, chocolates from UBS, you know, the, the, the Swiss bank, we used to get these chocolates every time we won and UBS stopped sending us chocolates because <laughs> sending us too many chocolates the first couple of years, every single win, we'd have a box of chocolates, you know, per, per employee. Amazing. So imagine how many, uh, how much. Got to cut the cost <laughs> yeah. and the calories. Um, I would say from a technical standpoint, I really, I enjoyed uh, the most that I would say probably the, um, the 2019 car I did, I did the radiator ducts and that was my favorite, uh, technical challenge. I would say, um, I did the rad ducts on that car W10 and it was, uh, it was a, probably the tightest packaged F1 car I've ever, you know, I've ever worked on or any of us ever did. Um, and I think I was so proud of my final, my final designs and how they came out and how they were iterated over, you know, a couple of years, how I got to this point. And it was kind of one of those moments where I said, okay, look, like you were able to do this. That was, you know, that's impressive. And I did tons of other cool projects over the years. I did the radiators on the 2017 car and a bunch of other different, you know, thousands of parts probably over the years. And, and when I look back, I can't really pick one out, but that was, that was one project where I really kind of just sat back and said, all right, that's, that's pretty cool. Like what we did was cool this year, you know, and you know, we won a world championship doing it. So the results uh, spoke for themselves there. Yeah. That's that's pretty cool. 
Now, we actually reached out to you after we saw a Twitter thread that you did relating to diversity within Formula One. So moving on to that part of the conversation a bit more, do you mind sharing what your experiences have been of diversity within Formula One? You mentioned earlier the lack of diversity in terms of colleagues from the US and outside of the EU, but more broadly, what has your experience been? Yeah, um, my experience has been positive, and I think it's probably been very positive because of the fact that I'm first uh, an American before I'm a Lebanese American or, you know, uh, someone of a Middle Eastern background. And I think that was always a, a, a easy way for me to segue into situations and, and kind of maneuver my way around without maybe a stigma of being, uh, you know, some fo- from some foreign country, you know, and, and you realize that motorsport is a male is a white male dominated sport. That's that's really the truth. It's just like polo. It's like cricket, you know, or those kinds of things. It's it, there's a there's a target, almost a target demographic that just perpetually goes in and out of the sport. And to pull other people into it is very difficult. And one of my biggest, uh, the things I'm most proud of, I think, uh, in my time in motorsport is when I started, no one really knew about F1 back in the states, you know, and all my friends they didn't really know. And by the end of it everyone's like, I saw you on the Netflix episode or, you know, like I'm watching the sport. And these are people from very diverse backgrounds. I come from Miami. Uh, Miami's a melting pot. No one, no two people look alike, every color imaginable. And I'm getting people from all backgrounds, you know, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, everyone. And I'm noticing that they all love Formula One. And I was so, I was, I was kind of taken back from it because uh, when I started, no one loved it. It was like I spoke one a language no one else spoke. And then when I got out of it, everyone's kind of like learning my language, you know, and I thought that was a very, uh, very cool thing. And I think now the sport's got such a it, uh, such a cool trajectory where more and more people of, of different backgrounds are starting to get interested in it yeah. and starting to push their way into it and say, hey, look, I, you know, I'd like to study engineering now or I'd... Uh, maybe I can be a driver. And these are people from all walks of life and locations that never might've had the chance to prior. Mm-hmm. You know? So I, I think that the struggles um, in formula one will, will not be long lasting. And I think it will start to open up uh, as far as me being an engineer. It, it was an interesting uh, situation. I would say, like, like I say, I come from Miami. It's a little different down here. Uh, people are, you know, we listen to different music. We dress a little differently. Uh, we're a little more bolsterous and, and uh, uh, I don't know, maybe kind of flamboyant in a way. And just once I realized I was moving to the, the West Midlands and, <laughs> you know, everyone's quite a difference there. <laughs> and I'm, all, my, all my colleagues are really cool. Like I'm friends with everyone at work, but I realized I stuck out like a sore thumb, like, you know, I, I'm the one wearing, you know, Jordan 13s in the office and everyone else is in like penny loafers or something. You know, it, it just, I didn't, I might not have fit into uh, the, dem- the the demographic of England, you know, Southern England, but I definitely fit into Formula One because I, I could hold my own. I wouldn't have lasted six years, but I realized I was definitely out of place everywhere else besides within the office, you know, like the office was almost like my safe haven in a way, because I knew that I could talk engineering or I could, I could talk formula one and do my work well. But once I got out of that, I realized maybe I didn't exactly fit in, in Oxford that well, you know, (laughs) I 
different. Um, so I don't want to discourage people from other backgrounds to get into the sport, but it, it is, um, it is, a, it is a white male dominated sport and, and Mercedes did a really good job over the years of bringing in more, uh, female engineers, graduates. And it's almost as if there was this unconscious push to, to really start to, uh, diversify the design office. And I saw that over time. Um, is it enough yet? No, it's not. Um, and they could do so much more. And I think now you're starting to see people like Lewis Hamilton kind of make a big, a bit of a push publicly. Hmm. Um, and it's, and it's one, I don't want to be critical of Lewis, but, uh, it's a push that probably should have started years ago. You know, he's, he's the LeBron James of this sport. You know, he's the Tiger Woods of Formula One and he has been, it's not like he just became it this year. Yeah. You know, he had a, he had a platform for many years. So I'm really yeah. glad he's speaking out now and I'm glad he's going to try to make a change, but this is a platform that's been there for him to speak on. And it's almost as if he didn't turn the mic on for a couple of years, you know? Yeah. I think as well uh, with, with that, I, I do remember a few years ago, he, he did mention it a couple of times about the lack of diversity and how he wanted that to change. But I guess the sport probably wasn't listening as well. So mm. if someone's not listening, you know, you know, it's very hard to repeat that message if you're not getting anything back. So I guess it's, you know, what, what's been happening in the world this year and, and everything going on with that, that's kind of been the catalyst for the whole world to listen, really, which has made the sport listen up, which, you know, it's a shame that it's had to come mm. to that. But we're on that path now that we need to be on, which is really good. Going back to what you said about, you know, not fitting in, um, coming over from Miami. To be honest, I don't think that's such a bad thing because someone's got to do it. Just because you don't fit in in certain ways doesn't mean that you shouldn't be there. You know, just because people now fit in a box generally doesn't mean that that box, you know, has to stay that shape. And, you know, as I say, it, it just takes one person to to break that mold and, you know, more people can come in with different backgrounds, but, you know, who still have the expertise and the knowledge and the experience that they need to, to bring, you know, what they can to the table. That's, that's really the, the, the uh, summary of it is if you have your expertise, you're, you're good at your job. You, you got a shot, you know, I yeah. might've been, uh, I might've been listening to Gucci man when I was designing Formula <laughs> One cars, but I was, I was still designing Formula One cars and I still knew yeah. what I was doing. And so there's nothing to say that you can't have a different background or a different, you, you, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, ethnic makeup, or you might, you know, do something different or dress differently. That doesn't mean you can't be in Formula One mm -hmm. and it shouldn't hinder your, your ability to try to do so. But the good thing about engineering, uh, or Formula One as a sport, um, I know, uh, James Allison likes to call it a meritocracy, you know, and the idea is that everything comes out in the wash. If you're bad at your job, everyone's going to see it and you see it, you see it on TV, you know, a uh, hundred million people will see it every weekend. If you're, if you're bad at your job or you're not a good enough designer or your aerodynamicist is not good or whatever, you get to see it and it shows up. So it all starts, I think, with the core competencies of what it means to be in your role in Formula One. And once you're good at that, it you know, uh, sky's the limit. It doesn't matter where you come from at that point. So, yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned earlier that you do receive a lot of messages on LinkedIn from people from diverse backgrounds who want to get into the sport. 
when these students are speaking to you and asking you questions, do you feel that they are coming to you because they're hesitant about pursuing their passion because of their diverse background? Or is it because they feel that they can relate to you yourself being from a diverse background? So uh, I would say the vast majority of messages I get are um, because they find something relatable to me, uh, to them. So uh, I get occasionally uh, quite a few Americans contact me, um, Americans from all walks of life, uh, it, every, every single color, age, demographic, everyone's represented. And then I get a lot of, uh, a lot of people from the Middle East who maybe spot my last name or they uh, maybe spot the beard. I don't know what it is. They <laughs> Um, and people from all over, all over Asia, just everywhere you could think of. But I do think that what most people are looking at is I might stick out a little bit from the typical um, John Smith, you know, yeah. Formula One or what have you. And um, and also I'm, I, I put myself out there. I make sure I'm accessible. And maybe those two things combined is why people are reaching out. The one thing that I noticed um over the years I started, after I started getting a bunch of these messages, I was like, hey, you know, all these kids are really interested in this and they, and they don't know it's possible. I think I should start doing some, you know, do an interview or something like that. And I was getting contacted by news agencies or newspapers over the years. And, and Mercedes always was very quick to say, no, 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 you can't talk to these people. Uh, for many years, there was, um, there was basically a moratorium on, on speaking unless you were Lewis or whoever the second driver was, Nico at the time or, or Valtteri, unless you, those two drivers or Toto Wolf, they didn't want anyone from the team speaking. And I, I didn't like that. And after about the fifth request from a newspaper, I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to tell Mercedes about it until six months later. I kind of, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty funny. So I did a, I did a, uh, the, the Miami Herald wanted to do a full interview on me. It's a local newspaper here. And uh, I did it and it went really well. It kind of uh, showed the entire journey that it took for me coming from South Florida all the way to Formula One and winning world championships. And I was really happy to do that, but I was more happy at receiving the messages I got from local students afterwards who were so inspired by this. There's currently right now, this fall, there's two kids from South Florida who both read that newspaper or in, at Oxford Brooks this fall studying their master's programs. Oh, brilliant. Amazing. Who, who read this article that I wouldn't, if I would have listened to my team, they would have never had the shot or, or the understanding that it was possible for, their, for them to accomplish their dreams. That's such a shame, actually, that Mercedes are quite precious about who they let talk. I know that they're opening up in terms of who they let do interviews more recently, but it's a shame because as you said earlier as well, you, the office was somewhere that you felt was a safe haven and a safe place and you always felt very at home and it was an inclusive environment. So it's actually a shame that you aren't able to tell more people about that and spread the word because it's a positive one. Exactly. The the design office was my safe haven. And in Mercedes, the engineering design office were were close, they were a close knit uh, community. You know, the designers and the arrows, they we work almost in a bubble. Um, the rest of the company might work on, you know, delivery or sponsors or comms or all these kinds of things, you know, that to us seem kind of frivolous because if the car is not fast, you have you don't get any sponsors. There's no communications to do. <laughs> There's nothing to sell, right? If the car is rubbish, it's uh, you got nothing. So it all starts in the engineer in in the design office. So I was always um, 
well received in the design office. I, I loved everyone I worked with. I mean, they were family. I didn't have any family in England when I was there. It was really my coworkers, you know. So in those dog those dog days in winter when you're there six days a week, you know, uh, you know, just feverishly working, the people next to you are the ones that those are your brothers and sisters, you know, essentially. That's um, really lovely. Yeah. That's, that's a really lovely sweet. working environment. What sort of things do you think teams like Mercedes and other Formula One teams and Formula One more widely can do? Because you've said there's definitely more work to be done and you've said that you saw Mercedes over time bringing in more female talent and this unconscious push as such to bring in more diverse talent. But what more active actions do you think could be taken? So it's uh, it's difficult and I understand why the teams have limitations in this. The, the teams are all located in, in the United Kingdom for the most part, besides a couple in Europe. And you realize one team of a thousand people and maybe 10 people in HR, they can't field CVs from around the world. There's just too many people, billions of people on this earth. But what you can do is make a conscious effort, um, which I really like what Infinity does with the engineering academy that they've done for the past four or five years. And they, for better or worse, their process, maybe I'm not a huge fan of, but they find talent around the world, people that can can work in Formula One, and they bring them to to England to do, uh, sometimes it's a placement, sometimes it's a grad scheme, whatever, they, they sign them up. But the proof is that they're out there. So I think where it starts is from the top. It starts actually beyond Mercedes. It starts within Formula One management to really say, hey, we want to make a conscious effort for you guys to recruit people from diverse backgrounds, not even just diverse backgrounds within the US, but it's a global sport anywhere. It, it could be they set up a recruiting trip to go to Singapore or something and go to the, you know, two or three universities there. And maybe you hold a competition, you know, and, and you say, all right, I'm going to find one kid out of this group who, who might have a shot at a placement, you know, we'll bring them, we'll bring them to England for a year. But the, the knock on effects of doing that, you just made 200 new Formula One fans probably that all loved race cars and never knew there was a pathway to it. You know, you might have sparked someone else's interest where it could uh, you could find so much so much hidden talent, maybe new teams, new drivers. Who knows where it comes from? But if you don't spread out your approach and stop being so Eurocentric in in the way that the sport operates, you'll never really see the untapped talent that might be out there. You know, Um, it. It, there's the possibilities are endless. The one thing that I did like that Mercedes did for years was um, because of Petronas, they had Petronas interns would come and this was, wasn't very publicized, but they'd have about 10 university students from Malaysia every year uh, and they'd send them to Mercedes F1 and they'd disperse them across the company for, you know, nine months or so and do this internship. And it was always really cool because I knew that these kids from Malaysia would never have had a shot of working in Formula One ever. And because of this tie up with with Petronas, they were given, and they probably good university students at the time, they were given this opportunity to come to Mercedes to to see what a Formula One team was like. So I I really liked the, um, I liked that. And that was a a kind of a diversity and inclusion uh, program that's been in place for many years at Mercedes, almost since I've been there. Uh, it's not publicized and they don't really talk yeah. about it. They need to shout about things like that. They should. And I'm I'm really happy they are starting to highlight people like, uh, what's her name, Steph, Steph. on the, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, 
on the travel team, just because I, I know how tough it must have been for her to get her job and also to feel kind of welcome in her role as well. So I'm really happy that they're giving her a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of praise, you know, and, and she seems to kind yeah. of, it, the truth of the matter is Formula One teams don't do a good job of highlighting factory staff. Everyone, most people think that a Formula One team is just made up of the 75 people that travel, mm-hmm. you know, all the mechanics, the number one mechanics, number two, all these, all these guys, they're all my friends too. And that, you know, the engineers, the Bonos, the James Vowles, all those guys. Uh, but the truth is there's, there's hundreds of other employees that all had to put in the work to give them the car to be able to win these races. You know, it doesn't start, it's not just those 75 people. And I think that those roles, once you start to highlight them, are probably going to get uh, uh, people from diverse backgrounds wanting to have those jobs. You know, they're almost hidden. My role was basically a role for many years, you know. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot that can be done, I think, to bring more diversity into the sport. But the truth is, it's possible. I did it. You know, it doesn't matter what corner of the earth you come from. There's going to, it's going to be more difficult, but you can get to Formula One and you can win world championships, you know, uh, if you're not from England or Europe or what have you, you can do it. Another great podcast there. And Gabriel offers some really interesting insights from his time in F1. And it was promising to hear that F1 does seem to be on an upward trajectory in terms of the people that are joining the sport. So for instance, Gabriel mentioned the great job that Mercedes have done in bringing in more female engineers over the years. And also Petronas internships involving the university students from Malaysia. I agree. It is really promising. And it was good to hear how welcome Gabriel felt within his design team despite describing himself as not being quite the typical fit when arriving in southern England. We touched on an important point relating to this in that the box doesn't have to always stay that shape. We need people like Gabe breaking the mould and jumping those hoops to show that they can and do deserve to be there. Linking to that, Steph, is that as a sport, we've got to stop being so Eurocentric as we're missing out on untapped talent across the globe. Gabriel was a brilliant example of someone who was able to break into the sport and pursue his passion, but he had to sacrifice so much to get there and feels like he really had to go above and beyond to get into the industry. There are plenty of talented and driven people that aren't based in the UK or Europe, but I'm sure if given the opportunity of a role in the industry in their desired field, anyone who was passionate enough would be willing to relocate. And with that in mind, I do think it is important to not look past international applications when recruiting just because of where they were born or where they grew up or or still live. Gabe mentioned the Infinity Engineering Academy, which finds young engineers from around the world for their placements in partnership with Renault. And I think that's a brilliant example of diversifying the engineering workforce and giving opportunity to talent globally. Feel free to connect with Gabriel on LinkedIn if you're a serious and budding engineer and want to know more. 20 episodes later and that is all from us for this season a big thank you to all of our wonderful guests and of course to you guys for listening we will be back in january so make sure that you are subscribed to get notified when season two drops enjoy the holidays and take care